Chapter 23 of the Marquis de Villemer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marquis de Villemer by George Sand, translated by Ralph Keeler. Chapter 23. A few days later, Caroline wrote again to her sister. Polniac, May 15. Here I have been for five days past, in one of the most imposing ruined castles left from the feudal times, on the summit of a great black lava boulder, like those I told you about in connection with Le Puy and Esplay. You will think my position has changed, and my dream has become a reality. No, I am certainly near little Didier, but I have taken it upon myself to watch over him, for his father or protector has not yet appeared. Now see what has happened. I felt a wish to see the child again, besides a slight wish to learn more about him, and, lastly, I had a desire to examine closely this castle of Polniac, which looks from afar like a city of giants on a rock from the infernal depths. It is the strongest medieval fortress in the country. It was the nest of the terrible race of vultures under whose ravages Valais, Forez, and Avernia have trembled. The ancient lords of Polniac have left everywhere throughout these provinces mementos and traditions worthy of the legends about the ogre and bluebeard these feudal tyrants robbed travellers pillaged churches murdered the monks carried off women and set fire to villages and this too from father to son through long centuries the marquis de villemer worked out of these facts one of the most remarkable chapters of his book drawing the conclusion that the descendants of this family though innocent, assuredly, of the crimes of their ancestors, seemed by their misfortunes to have been expiating the triumphs of barbarism. Their citadel was impregnable. The rock is sliced down perpendicularly on all sides. The village forms a group below on the little hill which supports the block of lava. It is some distance from Lontriac. The insuperable ravines here make all distances great. Having started early, however, we arrived last Tuesday toward noon, and our little horse carried us to the foot of the postern. Peyrec left me there in order to take care of our animal and to look at some others, for he has quite a reputation in veterinary science, and wherever he goes, practice of this kind always comes to him. I found a little girl of ten years of age to open the door for me, but when I asked to see Dame Roquebert, the child told me with tears that her mother was dying. I hurried to where she lives, a part of the castle still standing, in good repair, and I found her the victim of a brain fever. Little Didier was playing about the room with another of this poor woman's children. The latter child was quite happy, comprehending nothing although the elder, while Didier, between smiles and tears, was looking toward the bedside with as much anxiety as a little creature of three years could be expected to show. When he caught sight of me, he came to me at once, and without coquetting before embracing me, as he did the first time, he clung to my dress, pulling me with his little hands, and saying, Mamma, in a voice so plaintive and gentle that my whole heart was won by it. He was certainly telling me about the strange condition of his adopted mother. I drew near the bed. Dame Roquebert could not speak. She knew no one. Her husband came in after a moment and began to be alarmed, for she had been in this state only a few hours. I told him it was time to send for a physician and a woman to take care of his wife, which he did at once, and as I could not be sure that it was not typhoid fever, I sent the children out of the room, warning the husband that it might be dangerous to leave them there. 
When the physician came at the expiration of two hours, he proved what I had done, observing that the disease had not yet defined itself and that the children must be placed in some other house. This change I undertook to make with the help of Peyrac, for the husband had quite lost his senses, and thought of nothing but having candles burnt in the village church and prayers mumbled in Latin, which he could not understand, but which seemed to him of more efficacy than the doctor's prescriptions. When he had calmed down a little, it was already four o'clock, and it was necessary for Peyrac to set out again with me, that the night might not overtake us in the ravine of the Gagne. There was no moon for the moment, and a storm was impending. Then poor Roquebert began to lament, saying that he was ruined unless someone would take care of the children, and especially the child, meaning by that Didier, the hen with the golden eggs for his household, special care was needful for him. He was not strong like the children of the country, and besides he was curious. He wanted to go everywhere, and these ruins are a labyrinth of precipices, where a young gentleman of this adventurous temper must not be lost sight of a single moment. He dared not trust him with anyone. The money this little one had brought into his house had made others envious. He had enemies. What did I know about it? In short, Peyrac said to me in a low voice, Come, your good heart, and my own bright ideas are at one in this matter. Remain here. I see they have the wherewith to lodge you comfortably. I will come back tomorrow to see how the case stands, and take you home if there is no further need of you. I confess I desired this decision. It seemed as if it were a duty, as well as a privilege, to watch over the child. Peyrac returned the next day, and as I saw that Dame Roquebert, though out of danger, would not be able to sit up for some days, I consented to remain, telling Peyrac not to come after me till the end of the week. I am very comfortable here in a vast room, which is, I believe, an old hall for the guards, that has been divided into several portions for the use of the farmers. The beds, though very rustic, are clean, and the housekeeping I attend to myself. I have the three children at my side all the time. The little girl does the cooking while I superintend. I see to the attendance which must be given the mother. I wash and dress Didier myself. He is clothed like the others in a little blue blouse, but with more care, especially since I have made it my concern. And I am so fond of him that I dread the moment when I shall have to leave him. You know my passion for children. That is, for some children. This one is certainly well-born. Charlie would be as jealous of him as a tiger, because, you see, this Didier is surely the son of a superior man or woman. He is of high, fine descent, morally speaking. His face is of a somewhat dull whiteness, with little flushes of color like those on standard roses. He has brown eyes of admirable shape and expression, and a forest of black hair, half inclined to curl, which is fine and soft as silk. His little hands are perfect, and he never soils them. He does not dig in the earth, and never touches anything. He passes his life in looking at things. I am sure he has thoughts beyond his years which he cannot express, or rather, a series of dreams, charming and divine, that cannot be translated into human language. Yet he talks very fluently for one of his age, both in French and patois. He has caught the accent of the country, but makes it very sweet by his infantile lisp. He has the prettiest reasons in the world for doing as he pleases, and what he pleases is to be out of doors, climbing over the ruins, or crawling into their crevices. Once there, he sits down, 
gazing at the tiny flowers, and especially at the insects, without touching them, but following all their emotions apparently interested in these living marvels, while the other children think only of crushing and destroying them. I have tried to give him his first notion in reading, being persuaded, contrary to the father's opinion perhaps, that the earlier you begin with children, the more you spare them the heavy strain on the attention, so painful when their strength and activity have found greater development. I have tested his intelligence and curiosity. They are unusual, and with our wonderful method which we succeeded so well with your children, I am sure I could teach him to read in a month. And then this child is all soul, and his self-will melts into boundless affection. Our fondness is growing too fast, really, and I ask myself how we are ever going to part. Besides, although I miss my Justine and Pérec, I enjoy myself exceedingly among these magnificent ruins, commanding, as they do, one of the loveliest spots on earth. The air is so pure that the white stones mixed with rough fragments of lava are as bright as if just from a quarry. And then the interior of this immense castle is stored with very curious things. You must know that the Polniak family pretend to a descent from Apollo, or his priests in a direct line. And that tradition consecrates the existence here of a temple to this god, a temple of which some fragments yet remain. As for myself, I think there is no doubt of it, and that just to see these fragments is enough. The question to decide is whether the inscriptions and carvings were brought here to decorate the castle according to Renaissance usage, or whether the castle was built upon these vestiges. Dame Robert tells me the scientific men of the country have been disputing over it for fifty years, and for my own part I agree with those who think the curbstone of the well was the mouthpiece of the god's oracles. The orifice of this immense well, with which another and a smaller well grotesquely communicates, was closed by a colossal head of noble outline, whose perforated mouth gave forth the subterranean voice of the priestess. Why not? Those who say it was only the mask of a fountain are no surer. The head has been preserved from destruction in the lower story of a little tower, along with a pile of stone bullets found in the well. I have amused myself by taking a sketch of it, which I send you in this letter, with a portrait of my little Didier at its foot, lying sound asleep at full length upon the temple of the god. It does not look like him, to be sure, but it will give you an idea of the fantastic and charming picture which I have had before my eyes for the last fifteen minutes. As for the other matters, I do not read at all here. I have not Pérec's eight or ten stray volumes and his big old Protestant Bible. I no longer try to improve myself. I hardly think of it even. I mend the clothing of my Didier, following him step by step. I dream I am sad but not rebellious, and not given to wondering any further about a state of things to which I ought to submit. And I am in good health, which is the most important thing. Good old Pérec comes in, bringing your letter. Ah, my sister, do not give up weakly, or I shall be in despair. You say he is pale, already ill, and this gave you so much pain that you came near betraying me. Camilla, if you have not strength enough to see a courageous man suffer, and if you do not understand that my courage alone can support his, I will set out again. I will go farther away still, and you shall not know where I am. Consider yourself notified that the day I see the mark of a strange foot upon the sand of my island, I shall disappear so entirely that... Caroline left the sentence unfinished. 
Pehlek, who had just given her Madame Hautbert's letter, came back saying, Here is the gentleman coming. Who? What? cried Caroline, rising and evidently quite troubled. What gentleman? The father of the unknown child, Monsieur Bernier, he calls himself. Then you know his name? No one here knew it or would tell it. On my word, I am not very curious, but he threw his valise on a bench at Roquebert's door, and my eye happened to fall upon it, so I read. Bernier, I don't know any such person. Perhaps I might show myself without getting into difficulty. Why, certainly you must see him, to tell him about the little one. Now is the time. Roquebert came in, however, and defeated Peyrac's design. Monsieur Bernier was asking for his son, but according to his custom he had gone into a room reserved for him especially, and did not wish, just then, to see any one not of the family. It is all the same, added Roquebert. I will tell him how you took care of my wife and the little boy, and he will certainly give me something good to repay you with. Otherwise I will do it myself, out of my own pocket. Be easy about that. He took the child in his arms and went out, closing the door behind him, as if to shut out even a curious look from following him into the passage leading to the stranger's room. "'Well, let us set out,' said Caroline, whose eyes were full of tears at the thought that she would probably never see Didier again. "'No,' replied Peyrec. "'Let us wait a little and see what the gentleman will think, when he knows you have stayed here five days to take care of his child.' But don't you see, my friend, that Roquebert will take care not to tell him? He will never dare to own that during his wife's illness he knew of nothing better than trusting the child to a stranger. And beside, is he not anxious to keep Didier a year longer, which would be very feasible? Will he let us give the father a hint that the child would not only be better cared for with us, but also educated as he needs to be at his age? No. No, Dame Hochbert herself, in spite of the care I have given her, will say that no one knows me, that perhaps I am only an adventuress, and while seeking gratitude and confidence, we shall look as if we were intriguing to get the few sous which have been offered us already. But when we refuse them, it will be seen who we are. I am known myself. It is understood that Samuel Peyrec has never lied or held out his hand for money. This stranger knows nothing of that, and he will inquire of the Roquebears only because he knows nobody else. Let me set out quickly, my dear friend. I suffer every minute I stay here. Just as you like, said Peyrec. I have not unharnessed, and we can let the horse rest at Le Puy. But nevertheless, if you would trust me, we should remain here one or two hours. Going thither from here, we would naturally meet on the way. The child would come to you and ask for you himself. He is so fond of you already. Look here now. If the gentleman should see you only one minute, I am sure he would say, Here is a person who is like no one else. I must speak to her. And when he had talked with you... Arguing in this way, Peyrec followed Caroline, who had gathered up her clothing and was turning her steps toward the castle gate, quite determined to start. Passing before the bench, where the stranger's valise was still lying beside his traveling cloak, she read the name which Peyrec had reported faithfully. But at the same time she made a gesture of surprise and hurried along with unusual agitation. "'What is it now?' asked the good man, taking the reins. "'Nothing. A fancy,' replied Caroline, when they were out of the enclosure. "'I imagined I recognized the hand of the person who wrote the name of Bernier on that valise.' "'Bah! It was written just like print.' "'That is true.' I am silly. Never mind. Let us go on, my good Peyrac. Caroline was absorbed in thought all the way. 
she accounted for the singular emotion which the sight of the disguised handwriting had caused her by what she had just experienced in reading her sister's letter, but she had a new anxiety. Monsieur de Villemer had never told her that he had seen the castle of Pognac with his own eyes, but he had given a fine description of it, and an accurate one in his book. He had taken it as an example of the strength of a feudal restoration in the Middle Ages, and Caroline knew he often travelled into the provinces in order to get a distinct impression of historical places. She searched all the recesses of her memory to find what could not possibly be there, to see if the Marquis had not accidentally chanced to tell her that he had visited Polniac. No, replied she to herself, if he had said so, I should have been impressed by it on account of the names L'Entriac and Le Puy, which Justine had mentioned. Then she tried to remember whether, in connection with Polniac, she had not spoken of L'Entriac and Justine, but she had never mentioned either of them to him. She was quite sure, so she grew calmer. Yet she was agitated and thoughtful. Why had she taken such a fancy to this unknown child? What was the peculiarity in his eyes, his attitude, and his smile? Was it that he looked like the Marquis? In the idea which had so suddenly presented itself, of educating a little child and wishing for this one, might there not have been a vague instinct more powerful than chance or Peyrec's instigations? With all this uneasiness there came, too, in Caroline's despite, the secret torment of a confused jealousy. He has a son. Then a child of love, said she to herself. He must then have loved some woman passionately before he knew me, for frivolous adventures are incompatible with his exclusive nature. And there has been an important mystery in his past life. The mother is still living, perhaps. Why is she supposed to be dead? Advancing among these feverish speculations, she recalled the words of the Marquis under the cedar in the Jardin de Plantes, and the struggle she had caught a glimpse of between his filial duty and some other duty, some other love, of which she herself might not be the object after all. Who knew whether the old marchioness had not been equally at fault, whether the Marquis had told his mother the name of the person he wanted to marry, in short, whether she herself and Madame de Villemere had not both missed the truth. Thus working herself into an involuntary excitement, Caroline strove in vain to feel reconciled to her fate. She loved, and for her the strongest feeling now was the fear rather than the hope of not being loved in return. "'What is the trouble?' asked Peyrac, who had learned to read her anxieties in her face. She replied by overwhelming him with questions about this Monsieur Bernier whom he had seen once. Peyrac had a keen eye and a memory, but habitually thoughtful and reserved. He bestowed his attention only on people who especially interested him. He drew then a picture of this pretended Bernier so vague and incomplete that Caroline had no progress. She slept poorly that night, but toward morning she grew calm and awoke saying to herself that there had been no common sense in her excitement of the day before. Peyrac, having to go his rounds, could not linger till her awakening. He came in at nightfall. His air was triumphant. "'Our affair is working well,' said he. "'Mr. Bernier will come here tomorrow, and you may rest easy. He is an Englishman, a sailor. You don't know any such person, do you?' "'No, not at all,' replied Caroline. You saw him again, then? No, he had just gone out, but I saw Dame Roquebert, who is better and begins to have her senses. She told me the little one cried last night, and before he fell asleep, asked over and again for his Charlotte. 
The father inquired who she was. It seems that Robert had no great wish to speak of you, but his wife, who is a good Christian, and the little girl, who is fond of you too, said you were an angel from heaven, and the gentleman replied he would like to thank you, and make you some recompense. He asked where you lived. He has never been at our house, but remembered me perfectly. He said he would come and see us soon. He promised the child this, and even that he would bring you back, in order to make him go to sleep. In all this, said Caroline, I see only one thing, and that is, this stranger is coming to offer me money. Well, let him do it, so much the better. It will be an opportunity to show him you are not what he thinks. You will see one another, you will converse. He will find you are an educated young lady, above what he supposes you are, and I will tell him your history, because this history of yours does you credit. No, replied Caroline quickly. What? Shall I entrust my secret to a stranger, after so many precautions to conceal my name and position? But since you do not know him, said Justine, if you are agreed on the matter of the child, he should be entrusted with the whole. Having his secret, we can afford to give him ours. He would have no inducement to betray it. Justine, cried Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais, who was near a window that faced the street. Listen, heaven! Not another word. There he is, certainly, this Monsieur Bernier. He is coming here, and it is, yes, I was sure, it is he. It is Monsieur de Villemer. Oh, my friends, hide me. Tell him I am gone, that I am not coming back. If he sees me, if he speaks to me, can't you feel that I am lost? End of chapter 23